gospel, although he is, he is show and tell. He is actually, as he is doing them, he is actually bringing about the actual good news, the actual renewal of all things. And so, particular, these stories are recorded by John in order to show us and not simply tell us about God, about Jesus, and he's telling us about people, and he's telling us about us, because we are the inheritors of this story. And so this story, we're talking about Jesus walking on water, and of course, someone's going to say, Vince, this isn't actually officially a sign. I know you're doing the seven signs, this is not officially a sign, and I'm like, good job, smarty pants, gold star. Yes, I know that. The reason why I know that is because I, I put this in there anyway, because I, uh, traditionally some people have put it in, others have not, and because I combined on Easter Jesus, uh, uh, Jesus being the, making the statement, he's the, he's the resurrection and the life, and also the raising of Lazarus, I just kind of paired that into one sermon, and therefore we get an extra little hangy sermon, and then boom, you've got Jesus walking on water, so sit tight. Okay, but I'm preaching this because it, it, he does. It, it shows it shows who Jesus is, and shows what he's doing, and shows a lot of about ourselves and our situation. Um, one of the most traumatizing noises that you could play for my children is a weather siren. A weather siren. We moved to St. Louis about six years ago, and the first time they heard a weather siren, I had to get down on their level and tell them, this is a tornado warning. They're like, what's a tornado? And I'm all like, well, it's when hot air and cold air... No, I didn't tell it like that. I said, it's an extremely scary storm. And so whenever they would hear the siren, they became traumatized, more or less, and their fight or flight response would get up. They'd start to sweat. Their eyes would dilate. Their palms would go crazy. They'd start to chatter, and they would do what instinctually we should all do, and that was run to mommy and daddy. Because immediately what children were doing and what our instincts ought to tell us, and I think our kids can show us, is that we are looking for someone to keep us safe in the midst of the storm. And that's what is going on here. These rowers, uh, Jesus' disciples, are out there rowing on a lake, and they've been rowing for a long time. It says that they had gone probably about three and a half miles is what's going on. And so they are rowing, and a storm comes up, which was usual at the time, and a bunch of sailors who are really tough, suddenly, suddenly, they are freaked out. So they've been on this lake before, they've been on the sea before, but they are scared out of their mind. They were frightened, it says. They were frightened. They were on a 25-foot boat, rowing and rowing and rowing. And what they needed was not someone to step up like Peter and say, well, guys, you know what you need to do? You need to hear some good advice. No, what they needed was a savior. They're panicking. They didn't need Peter saying, uh, John, you need to bail out some water and uh, fill up. What's wrong with your little noodle arms? Get rowing. They didn't need that. What they needed was a savior, someone strong enough to protect them and bring them through the storm. And I would say that a lot of us are like that. There's a lot of things that have caused us trauma in our lives. There are some of us even here right now with a pit in our stomach thinking about the unknown. 
our fight or flight response has been activated. We're scared. We're worried and anxious even now, thinking about whatever it is that's lurking on Monday. You know, and so what's happening is we're a lot like those guys on the boat, aren't we? We're sitting there, panicking, frightened, and what we're doing out here is we're just keeping it all together and trying to row away. See, we're all living in a storm, and it seems like death is going to swallow us up. But this story illustrates to us and shows us something about who we are and who Jesus is. And there's three things that we need to observe. Three things that we need to observe. The storm, the fear, and the Savior. The storm, the fear, and the Savior. So the storm, there in, the, in this midst of the storm, it says, it was not, it was not atypical for, for storms like this to come up. But the writer makes particular mention of, a, uh, of the storm here. It says, they went down into the boat, and notice that it says, Jesus had not come to them, he had not joined them. And he talks about that it had become dark. He mentions the sea. It was rough, it was blowing, and it was normal for the hot air of the day to clash with the cool air rushing down the mountain to create a squall, terrible storm. Um, and what this storm is going to show us is that we need a Savior. It shows our inability to make the world the way it was meant to be as long as we are living in our sin. It shows that we are, apart from Jesus, dead. We're dead. We're going down. And what we need is someone strong enough to walk on the water and come get us. Someone who is poised and will come after us. Let's look at a few of these things that we need to uh, understand this, what, what is going on. And so John, what he does is he writes the first few verses of the section and to kind of put the setting on, right? And so if you're a young person and you're in literature, you probably know what's going on. We're like, hmm, occasioning incident. The plot thickens. Let's turn it up a little bit and notice the tension. And he does it in a few ways. So starting in verse 16, when evening came, so there you are, the disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the Sea of Capernaum. Uh, Notice he's repeating. Why does he have to say the word sea? The sea. The sea. Um, Because uh, this occasioning incident, the way that John is turning the screws to heighten the tension on you is this, is because the sea in ancient Near Eastern cultures uh, at the time and in Palestine was seen as formidable, uncontrollable. And in fact, oceans rising and different things like that was usually used as a kind of a curse almost. It's to cause fear. It struck fear in people. Uh, This is part of the reason why in Revelation it says that the sea will be no more. So it's um, using imagistic language to tell you there's nothing to fear anymore about that sea, that uncontrollable place. Here it is. Uh, Notice it is always, it, uh, it talks about God saving people out of the waters, out of the flood waters. It was Noah and the waters of judgment. It was when the people were backed up in Exodus to, to, to they saw the Red Sea and they're like, we're going to die. The Egyptians are coming. This is our judgment. You brought us out here to die. And so everyone's afraid of the sea. And so what, what uh, John does is he puts the tension on with the sea. Next he says this thing. He says, uh, evening came 
and now it was dark. Well, of course it was, be, it was dark. You can kind of assume that, but why does he need to say it twice? Because darkness is also an ominous sign. Nothing, happened good, nothing good happens at dark. You can, you can kind of relate to this now. You think about being a kid. What do your parents say? Uh, come in whenever the street lights come on, you know, whenever you're a little kid and say, you got to come in. Why? Because there's scary people at night. It's probably not really scary people, but sometimes there are. Okay? And so kids instinctually are afraid of the dark. Uh, this is also why in Psalm 23 it says, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, uh, it kind of a flat translation would be, Though I walk through the valley of deep darkness. Though I walk through the valley of deep darkness. So darkness is this ominous sign. And then we think about this storm that has risen up. If you remember the book of Jonah, God appoints a storm. In order to do what to Jonah? Jonah was a person who was a prophet. He represented the people. He was to be the idealized Israelite. But they were not living out what they were supposed to do. So God appointed a storm to go wipe Jonah out. But not just to kill him, but to turn him around. To get him to trust and repent in Jesus. It's so here... You have these people, these sailors, and if a bunch of sailors decide that they are frightened because of a storm, guess what? It was frightening. Okay? It was actually frightening and that you needed to turn. And so, um, and so the first instinct is to row harder. In each part of this story, though, our fight or flight responses come up. So what are they going to do? They have fight or flight response. The storms cause, cause it, uh, storms cause us to be frightened. We get a physiological response. It indicates that something is wrong. We're not foreign to it. Do you know, a lot of times we're probably sitting here with our fight or flight response up right now. It's what we call anxiety. It's what we call anxiety. We fight to be seen. We fight to be valued. We fight to be worthwhile. We fight to love, be loved, or we, or we run. We run away from challenges, we run away from criticism, we run away from commitment, we run away from, the, from, things, from working things out with other people, we run to drugs, we run to alcohol, we run to false intimacy or pornography, we run to food, we run to shopping, we run to Instagram. We run to all these things. Why? Because I think right now, we know that we're all living in a storm, don't we? There's something that's got us anxious. We know that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. And I turn on the news, and you'll, you will know that this world is not the way it was meant to be. And so this is kind of a, the scene is set. Here it is, the storm. It's the storm of death. We're all living in it. You see, whatever it is we hope in to get us through the storm, that's our God. Whatever we hope in, whatever we, we think will actually deliver us, that's our God. And this happens on a macro level as well. So we're not just talking about like little micro level. Uh, the world trusts in political parties. The world will trust in the candidate. The world will trust in elections. Trust in economic systems. We trust all these things to put the world to rights. And it's just rowing in the storm. You know, some of these things may be good, but... Some of these things may be good, but they're not walking out on water to come get you. 
They're not walking on water to come get you. None of those things could possibly care for you the way the Lord does. And he's the one who cares for the world. See, all this ends up being kind of like these self-salvation projects. It's the way of death. It's helpless rowing against the storm. It is just compounding. So you're trying to fight back death with death. Why? Because it then all depends on you. And I don't know if you've checked lately, but you can't walk on water. You're not that strong. You're not sovereign over the world. It doesn't work out for you. And other people, we try to medicate ourselves on social media, though it's a temporary and distracting bomb. It's actually aggravating our anxiety. You know that? You get on there, and actually they have noticed that the brain is activated in the fight-or-flight response. That's why you're so easily triggered whenever you see someone outrageous on Twitter saying something like, how dare you say that? What are you thinking? And so, boom, you know? And this is why you're up late at night, you're looking at Twitter, and you're constantly enraged, why you can't sleep at night. It's because you've started, we've, we've gone through this cycle of anxiety, and we need a Savior. And that's what the storm is telling us, that we are un- incapable of saving ourselves from the storm. There's a storm raging around us. How are we going to get out of it? And the biggest storm for me was uh, right around the time that my first child was born. Uh, my wife and I, we tried to get pregnant. We tried to start a family for 14 months. So it was hard. We didn't know what was going on. But then something happened. We got pregnant. It was awesome. It was joyous. It was great. But then we went to our first ultrasound. And there the ultrasound technician was doing her thing. We were still smiling, but then we noticed something. The ultrasound technician started making all kinds of measurements that weren't supposed to be there. And we were thrown into the storm. We couldn't control it. We didn't know what was going to go on. We found out that our son, his abdominal wall didn't close. His guts were going to be on outside. And the doctor said he also has a two-vessel cord, which they're not necessarily related, but they said is usually indicative of a larger genetic problem that's incompatible with life. How was I going to control this? How was I going to row myself out of this one? Truth is, I wasn't. You know, and in this, I think, is when, when my wife started wrestling, really, and started figuring out who this God really is, and she came to a deeper understanding. You see, if God wasn't in control, if God wasn't in control, if this kind of like slipped past his radar, how in the world do you worship a God who kind of lets this one get in the back door? But then on another end, if he's sovereign over all things, he doesn't let it get past him then somehow he knows, even though in, in trusting that he's going to make the world all right, that, that he knows better. And that on the cross, my wife understood, I know he cares for me. I know he cares for me in the midst of this. We may lose our child. Now, of course, you know our first child runs around here like a madman, and so he's okay. He's wonderful. But it reminds me of this quote by John Stott. I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as the God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? 
I've entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha. His legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around in his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, after a while, I've had to turn away. And in imagination, I turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through his hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from the thorns pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. He was in the storm. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in light of this. There is still a question mark against human suffering, but over it we boldly stamp another mark, the cross that symbolizes divine suffering. The cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in such a world as ours. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds only God's wounds can speak, and not a God has wounds but thou alone." We see in the cross the great answer to us in the, in the storms. God, do you care? Do you see what's going on? And on the cross, you see that absolutely he cares. He cares enough to throw himself into the storm for you. And so what it is, what is it for us? Maybe you have, uh, you're looking for, you, you, for us, we believe we can have actual true stability in the life of storms, in the storm of, storms of life. We can get pushed around a bit. Things can get sad. Things can be intolerably hard. But it won't ultimately overcome you, even if you die. The good news of the gospel is that death doesn't even overcome you. The good news is that Jesus, he died in your stead, and so he got the real storm of death. And you can be risen with him, and that he has a new life. And he's given that life to you. You know, you, you'll ultimately live. The resurrection of Jesus tells us that it isn't the end. And then maybe for others. And with others, this is what you can do. Who are going through the storms of life. It means you can be present. And not only that, in your presence with them, you could be the very presence of God for them. Because we believe that the church is, is God's body, his presence on earth, that he hasn't forsaken the world. And so when you sit next to someone who is sick or you have a loved one who's dying of cancer or people who are sad and sorrowful and you sit next to them, you show that God hasn't forsaken them by your very presence because you know on the cross that God hasn't forsaken you threw himself into the storm. Here, also, we need to understand the fear. So Jesus reprioritizes our fear. He makes us rightly fear what we should fear. And ultimately, that would be death, but Jesus had defeated death. So here, here it rises. The action rises, and it says this. It says, um, the, the sea became rough, it was blowing, and then they see, suddenly, Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were frightened. And Jesus' first words to them is, 
do not be afraid. Okay? So they see Jesus coming. Notice this. They are not frightened by the storm anymore. They are suddenly frightened by Jesus walking on the water. They thought he was a ghost. And here's the thing. If you think you see a ghost, it's actually scary. Okay? That's why you scare. Ah! You know, you go to the fun house and it scares the heck out of you. You know, it's actually scary. And so they're actually scared. They're frightened. But they're not frightened of the storm necessarily. They're frightened of Jesus walking on water. And so he changes their fear. He replaces their fear. It happens in the middle of the lake, the book of Mark tells us. You know, they were frightened, but not of the storm, but of the sight of Jesus. And the storm suddenly recedes to the background of the text. You never hear about the storm again. Jesus walking on water, that's more scary than the storm. So John focuses the attention then on Jesus walking on the water. Why? Because I think whenever we fear Jesus, we see that the one who uh, we truly need, the one we truly want, if he were to reject us, that's what we should be fearful of. If there was no hope in the world, if God's only son actually walked out on us, that's what we should fear. Not only that, he, I almost said homeboy, but that's a normal normal context for me. If you know me, homeboy, he is walking on water. He is walking on water. The wind and the waves obey him. He's in the middle of the lake, three and a half miles into the middle of the lake, and he's walking on water. You should be scared of this guy. I'd be turned around on the inside. He's getting in my boat. Oh, my goodness. That's the one you should be afraid of. But here's the beautiful thing. Here's the beautiful thing. Nothing was going to stop Jesus from getting to them. No storm, no sea, no darkness was going to stop the unstoppable, never-ending, always and forever love of Jesus from getting to them. And so he walks on water. Waves couldn't stop him. So you see this fear. A lot of us, we have fear that our circumstances are going to come upon us and they're going to crush them. And Jesus then says something interesting. He says, don't continue being fearful or overcome by fear. And so we think about these fears we have sometimes on the outside of us trying to get in. And then it messes with us and starts this internal storm, doesn't it? You start to realize certain things about yourself. The storms of circumstance happen, and internally we're filled with self-doubt, self-loathing, self-hatred. We're overwhelmed. And you know what that is? That's just Satan playing your song. He knows exactly what's going to turn you inside out. So you sit in bed saying, I'm not good enough. I'm not worthwhile. But Jesus comes after him. You see, it doesn't mean, here's the thing, the fear doesn't mean that when you're a Christian, you will no longer have fears, but that you will have a greater fear. And the greater fear supplants and puts the fear of the storm into better perspective. You realize that the storm can't really touch you because the true storm really touched Jesus. He defeated it. And so this isn't like secular optimism. You know what secular optimism does? Secular optimism says this, it's all going to be okay. Do you know what you ought to say? Based on what? It's going to be all okay based on what? <laughs> Why? 
Why do you know that? Because I've got an iPhone now and 20 years ago they didn't. Big whoop. Okay? I don't understand how that's going to make the world better. You know? Here's the deal. Kind of true gospel hope tells you it may hurt like hell, but Jesus took the worst of it. He took the real pains of hell and he turned it on his head. Uh, you know what hurt like hell for me? It was the first time that I had an eval about a job that I had. Okay? The eternal storm. They're like, we're going to do end of the year evaluations. And if you're a type A personality that likes to achieve and you're super high functioning and you, know, you feel like you got everything together and like, look at the world, I'm awesome. And then suddenly, suddenly, uh, someone says, you're being evaluated by all your peers. And you're like, what do they know? <laughs> yeah, they're all inferior to me. And so the storm, the storm was rising up. You know, it, it, a peer review was like death for me. But it wasn't until I kind of placed my, until I started understanding how kind of the fear works. If the one that you should truly be fearful of has actually given you the positive verdict that you actually need, that he's given you the job eval, and he has said, you are approved, and you're validated, that you're worthwhile, that you have, you're okay. And if that's true, even if you get fired, even if you're terrible, the thing says, you know what? I know where this is headed. It may be terrible, but go ahead, do it. Give me the job eval, cut me down to size, give me the surgery. Because that's what it happens. Because all the cuts of criticism are not necessarily criticism. It is for you to become more of the person that God has meant you to be. And so you say, go ahead. Cut me open. Do it. Because then you can grow. You know, when the one who can really determine your worth tells you that you can, uh, that you, uh, tells you, that you can have real peace in the midst of the storm. The storms are no longer Category 5 hurricanes. They're only tropical depression. They're only tropical depression. And so what you need to do is you need to identify a lot of what initiates this fight-or-flight response. What's the job eval for me? What am I hoping to base my, my value before God and the world on? You know, and then it becomes for you, then it, you understand that any kind of feedback is just good. It's good for you. You know, uh, maybe for your wife, it comes from your wife, it comes from your boss, your roommate, your parent. It's allowing God to do surgery on you. Sometimes they may be wrong, okay? So don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying become a pushover. Because God may be calling you to stand up for yourself in the storm against your oppressors. Remember, in another story, Jesus tells Peter to come on out. Walk on the water. Look at me. Come on out. You see, if Jesus is in your boat, the storms may be raging around, but it, you know that you'll be delivered safely ashore. And lastly, we need to look at the Savior. And this Savior, we know that no storm, not even death, can keep the Savior from getting to us. Paul will later write, even while we were yet sinners, God demonstrates for his love for us in this. Christ died for us. 
Even when we're unlovable, God loved us, sent Jesus to die for us. See, Jesus hadn't come. They were without Jesus. They're looking for someone. That He's off praying. Where is he? It wasn't based on their merit. No mention saying that these 12 were really good guys. They had it all together. They knew everything. But it came in the midst of the darkness and the storm. Notice it's not that Jesus uh, comes after you figure it out either. It's like, don't worry, we figured it out. All we had to do was put the sail down. No. No. Jesus doesn't wait for you to figure it out. He loves you right where you are, and he loves you enough that you, you know, not to leave you where you are. Notice that it's, it doesn't mention that the storm ever really stops. It just says that they were delivered. Delivered safely to the other side. And so, sometimes maybe we get our prayers wrong. We ask Jesus to be our Savior. Change my circumstances. You know, make me a millionaire. <laughs> Powerball jackpot's huge this week. You know, and so, you know, it, we want these change of circumstances. But the great circumstances has changed in the fact that Jesus got in the boat. That Jesus came to him. That Jesus is dead set on getting you. And this is where it comes from. You need to realize who's in the boat, who's coming to get you, and then the storms of life don't seem so bad. You won't necessarily need your circumstances to change because you know who's in your boat. Why? Because Jesus says this. Jesus says, says he says, not, not that, he, he, it, the text says, it is I, which is a good translation, which is a good translation. But it says flatly, I am. I am. One of my favorite commentators disagrees with me, and he says it is perfectly acceptable for the Greek to, you know, say, say, it is I. But then you combine it with the next phrase, don't be afraid, or don't continue going on being afraid, which makes you realize, well, this sounds a lot like Exodus. Do not, no longer be fearful. You know, do not be afraid. The Lord will fight for you. Only be silent. Or to Joshua, don't be afraid, for I, the Lord, am with you. And whenever you see the Lord back in the Old Testament translated, it is, the, it is his covenantal name. It is the name he gave, he gave to the people. And he said this. He said, Yahweh, which means I am. So what does Jesus do? He reveals himself. He says, do you know who I am? Don't be afraid. I'm in your boat. I'm with you. I am. I am. The one who made heaven and earth. He's got you. Think a little wave is going to keep you from him? Think a little storm is going to keep you from the great I am? I, I don't think so. I don't think so. It is determined love that saves you. Chelsea Russell was a 35-year-old mother. She was hanging out on the back of her houseboat out in Lake Powell. When she heard a splash, I realized her two-year-old was missing. He was in the water. It was a great storm for her. She was an accomplished athlete but knew that her, with, her, with her AFib that she could easily die if she pushed it too hard. But that wasn't going to stop her. She jumped in the water, 
houseboats are notoriously slow. So she jumps in the water, swims after her son, grabs her son, holds him up. And at the very exhaustion, to the very end of her life, she holds him up until her heart gave out and she died. And at that very moment, nothing was going to stop her from saving that child, her two-year-old. And in that moment, his death was transferred to her, and her life was transferred to him. And what we believe as Christians is that Jesus on the cross, he lived the life that we were supposed to live and died the death we were supposed to die. And on the cross, his life was transferred to all who believe And our death was transferred to him. Because he went into the deep storm, the real storm, the storm that can actually crush and kill you. The storms of God's wrath. And it swept him away. But do you know what? Not even that could stop I am, God's love, from coming and making this world the way it was meant to be. No. The third day, he rose again so that we live not in the storm, but we live in life the way it was meant to be, even now in small glimpses as it battles to push away the storm. Jesus took the storm. He's the true one that you should fear. And Jesus is our Savior, not just for us personally, but for all the world. Let us pray.